I think true humility is not found in self-deprecation or in self-humiliation, but rather in allowing God to speak and allowing His Word to be the final word on my worth. And what He says I'm worth is actually awfully good news. That was Rochella Parham, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, my guest today on the Things Above conversation is Rochella Parham. And Rochella, I just, first of all, I just want to say this. You're the only Rochella I know. Yeah. Do you, do you know any others? <laughs> I've never met another Rochella. You've never met one. I've never, never met one. Can you just tell us what were your parents thinking? They just like Rochelle and they wanted an uh. Bless their hearts. <laughs> Actually, um, my mother named me for her younger brother, Richard. Okay. And my uncle Richard is just a prince of a fella. So I've always been thrilled to be his namesake. Um, but I think she liked the name Michelle. Michelle? Oh, She liked okay. Michelle and she wanted me to name me for Richard. And I guess Rochelle just didn't do it for her, so she added the A at the end. To make so, it feminine. Just yeah. add the A. Yeah. yeah. You add the A in it. Well, that's good. And then when I go to Italy, it's fun because um, friends there call me Rochelle. Which sounds really cool. <laughs> well, I like how you just dropped that you go to Italy because that makes you oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, just no. the fact that you drop that. <laughs> Not very often, but every once in a great while. <laughs> Well, I've not been, and I'm, it's on my bucket list, so oh, I'm going to yeah. go. It and then when I do, I'm going to call list. you to give me good travel tips. There we go. So, Rochella Parham, and listeners by now have noticed that you have a funny accent. You, oh, no, I'm kidding. Well, it's that a depends on who you ask, right? I know. For where sure, you're from, you don't not, sound like you're from around here. I don't, yes, exactly right. So, is it North Carolina accent? What do you? Where do you trace this lovely Actually, accent? Actually, it's not quite. I was born and reared in Tennessee, and have lived in Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Virginia, Michigan, and finally North Carolina. We've planted the flag here, but I don't think I can quite claim the North Carolina accent. Okay, so you're you're an amalgamation. That's of, right. Of a lot of I, okay, the Tennessee. I can, yep. yeah, but I definitely feel the North Carolina. Because I think it's a lovely one. I think there's well, some. Thank you. There are some Southern accents that aren't as attractive, and I'm, you know, going to get in trouble for probably saying that. But I just love the North Carolina. Well, I love, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm sure that people tell you that because it's a wonder. And we have known each other for 150 years. Pretty much, now? yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm trying to guess. Do you remember the year that you came to the Renovare? Yeah, board meeting? Think, what year was that? Let's see. I think I first met you, Jim, in 2004, maybe. Okay. Because yeah, I remember February you February 2004, to you did a Renovari conference here oh my, at, wait at, at my home church. Yes. Yeah, oh, wow. In uh, Chapel Hill. In Chapel Hill. I think that's the first time I actually met that you. That is. Person. Yeah, that's right. And then you came to a, a board meeting later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did a fantastic job at that conference. I remember like, wow, whoever's running this this conference is great. And then it was you. It was me. So that's good. That's I'm glad it was good. <laughs> <laughs> and since then, gosh, so, so that's 15 years mm -hmm. we've known each other. Yeah, I had, I had more hair then. 
Well, I had hair in general. Then. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I still have plenty, and I'm you have, glad to you, give you, you some. You win. You have the best <laughs> hair ever. Uh, <laughs> that's that's awesome. Okay, so every time I have a guest on who has written a book, I ask the same question. Pretty basic one. It's not going to throw you for a curve and all. It is, why did you write this book? Well, I have to admit that I wrote this book because I still needed it, but um, a few years ago, I really needed it, and I looked for it and couldn't find it. So the book, Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison, describes my lifelong struggle, Jim. And when I looked for help, what I found was trite and surface level, almost just sort of I guess some of it was inspirational, but some of it was just sort of cheerleady. There was no depth. There was nothing mm -hmm. that really helped me. So I wrote the book that I had been looking for. And um, since it describes a lifelong struggle for me, it's something I still struggle with sometimes. So every now and then I'll go back and reread it because I still need it. <laughs> well, I think that's true of all writers. I mm -hmm. think that we write, we, we write, and, and they, I've heard it said of preachers, we preach to ourselves, we write to ourselves, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we never really fully graduate either. Well, right. And I do agree, Rochella, in, in terms of uh, this subject. And there are, there's no shortage of books on the subject of no. identity, to be sure. And there's, if you walk into a self-help section in a, in a bookstore, you're going to be inundated with, with quite a lot. But I, I think your assessment, and I, I know it sounded maybe a little bit critical, um, but I'm with you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they are. I think cheerleading is, I, I'd never thought about that one, but they do kind of like, hey, you're, you're I, I always joke about the old Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley. Do you remember? Mm. You remember him? He was a that character. That may have been before uh, I was allowed to watch Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. You're younger. Al Franken played this guy who, his, he, it was a character named Stuart Smalley. And he was a self-help guru. And his catchphrase was, um, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Okay. And, and it was just a parody of, of you know, that kind of self-help. Just think Absolutely, positive yeah. about yourself. And, I, and I, so I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, when you're writing a book or thinking about writing a book, that's always the question is, has this been written? Is there a need for this? But what, what I think is so true of the book, uh, and, is, and I, it's what you're aiming for, is there's a lot of depth here. I mean, you, you're quoting Bart and you're, you're, you're going pretty deep in places, but what you do so well is you make it really accessible. Oh, and, I'm glad. Yeah. And that's, so there's, there is a tremendous amount of depth. It's not cheerleadery at all. Is that a word? Anyway. Well, it is um, now. <clears throat> it is now. It's not that at all. Uh, it's full of depth, but it also is really, really readable. And let me just say for listeners, who are wondering, okay, we've said that you've said the title mythical me by Rochelle Parham. Um, but man, what a great cover too. Oh, <laughs> isn't it a good a cover? Good... Oh, I'm yeah. so grateful to the, to the cover artists at IVP. Yeah. Yes. We do share a publisher University press did a fantastic job, um, with that. And so for, for readers that you don't know, there's a, and actually it's a, it looks like a, it's a, a smartphone and, but it's got a, a sort of mirror like, uh, reflection in within the smart so you see yourself but you see yourself dimly and distorted mm -hmm. and uh, so that's brilliant brilliant work those artists sometimes artists can do great work 
which is indeed fantastic. i'm grateful they, for they, them they did the, hey man i know about it because the good good and beautiful covers are fantastic I oh, often they're so beautiful <laughs> yeah in fact I know. your covers are some of the ones i pointed to when they when they asked me what kind of covers i liked i held up your books and said <laughs> there you <"These."> go <laughs> yeah well you know what and and cindy keipel who did those i mean i remember when i saw a bunch of prototypes and ideas for it and it was one of them and i was like i'm not sure i like that that's okay but looking back now it's like was there ever another set of covers i mean because they're they are so i often tell people you know they say don't judge a book by its covers but with the good and beautiful one do do mm -hmm. judge the, because the covers the covers are great but this mythical me for sure it has that as well well let's jump into the book because it's there's so much to talk about and it's such an important subject a pervasive problem really in human life is this issue in fact well let's just start with my endorsement can i just read a part of my endorsement? Oh, please do i think that'd be just so <laughs> so fitting but i, I like this because I, and i stole it from your book but if you feel stuck in the steel trap of comparison and long not only for freedom but for a way to embrace the fearfully and wonderfully made person god created has created you to be this is the book for you but you know, I, I took that from you, the, the that steel trap of comparison, because I think that's really right at the heart of it. And you you begin with a story uh, about your husband Jack, who uh, well, I'll let you tell the story to readers. But it's a story of when you were coming from a group of having been with some other women, and you were sharing about that group, and then Jack's comment, which I think was spot on. So I'll let you tell that story because you're going to okay. tell it way better than I do. Oh well, thank you. Um. It's a true story, and it's one that has stuck in my memory really starkly. I can remember it as if it were yesterday, although it was nearly 20 years ago now. I had just shared a carpool ride with three friends. We'd gone across town to um, a community Bible study, and after I came home, I was telling my husband about the Bible study, but also about the ride across town. And in doing so, I said, Oh, I wish I could be like friend number one, because she's so friendly and kind. And a little later, I said, you know, friend number two is so organized. It's just impressive. And man, I wish I could be like that. And then a bit later, wow, friend number three is so beautiful. She has such posture and poise. I wish I could be like that. Now, I had not noticed that I'd said this, but my husband did, and he stopped me and said, Stop. You're always comparing yourself to everyone you meet. And at that point, I had not discerned that it was a pattern in my life at all. So I um, was a little defensive. But he went on to tell me that I had made up a habit of choosing the best attributes of each person I came in contact with. And I compared myself against that best attribute. And he said, you're always coming up short because you're always choosing the best things about other people. At first, I was a little salty about that, <laughs> kind of defensive because I said, of course, I noticed the best in people. And he went on to say, yeah, but you have um, concocted for yourself a mythical composite woman. And that is who you think you should be. But I'm telling you, she doesn't exist. And those words have stuck in my mind so clearly because after I considered them for a while, I realized he was right. That, that is what I had done. Every person I would come in contact with, of course, 
I would notice what was great about them, what was um, impressive, what was breathtaking even. And I would file it in my mind under how I want to be. And I mm -hmm. had sort of assembled this composite person made up of all those different characteristics. Not until much later had I realized I had kind of Frankensteined together a perfect woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't, didn't realize that all the characteristics might not necessarily go together. I just used that composite person as a bit of a measuring stick against which, of course, I never measured up. So yeah. it was a problem. It was a real yeah. problem. Well, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a pervasive problem for most everyone. Yeah, I, I'm, I always have to do little qualifiers, right? Because there's probably a listener or two out there that doesn't relate to this very much. But for most people, I think it's absolutely an issue in our lives. And we do, I mean, that, that, that wonderful phrase, a mythical composite woman, we create that, but we also just, we, we endow people that we meet, celebrities or any, anybody we think, wow, look at that person. And then there's that back to the steel trap of comparison, Mike. It's exactly. Like, but yeah. I love what Jack said, you know, mm -hmm. that's not who you are. And I right. think that, 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 that becomes the central thing is trying to figure out, okay, I, I, I'm not being called to be that person, any, any other person. I am, you know, who I am. And, you know, how do we, how do we step away from this comparison struggle to be, to embrace the uniqueness and wonder of who we are and yet still not do that narcissistically. Exactly. And I think that's also part of the challenge as well is to say, well, I'm not, you know, the greatest thing that ever walked the earth. I'm also a human being. I'm broken and frail. And I love how your book does a good job of that as well. There's even a chapter that deals with the brokenness and that sort of thing. And I think that's really important. But, you know, I think all of us, Rochelle, we have these things in our lives that are areas that we think are deficient or imperfect or isn't quite right. And I think there's a tendency to really focus on that, like, like that's that. And I, and, and I want to ask you ultimately a question about that, which is, you know, what, why is it that we do that? But as a way of to, to sort of segue into that, you write in the book about your birthmark. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's interesting that we, we've known each other a long time. But I actually didn't know about your birthmark until only a couple of years ago. And then I didn't know the role that it kind of played in your own journey until I read about it in the book. But talk funny? a little bit about, and no, it is funny, isn't it? Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, about, you know, what that was like for you having this birthmark and what you learned from it. And, and then ultimately let's, maybe we'll dig in a little bit into why is it that we take something about us and, and focus on this thing that we don't quite like about right. us. Yeah. Well, to be, to be fair, um, my birthmark is rather, um, rather an outstanding thing about me because it's huge. <laughs> it covers most of the right side of my body. And I've talked with lots of people over the years who have a birthmark or some, some kind of little mark. And um, mine is, is one that is pretty easy to spot. So it's interesting to me that you knew me all those years and you had never noticed it. I think that's important because... For someone like me who has such a um, such a large kind of defect like that, it's easy to imagine that our particular defect is the first thing that people see when they mm. notice us. But mine is 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 part of a very rare disease, something that 
obviously I was born with or it wouldn't be a birthmark. And um, it is ultimately the, the source of my tendency to compare. Now I learned this only, only after working with a, a therapist for quite some while to, to figure out what it was that, that was plaguing me so. And as we began to peel back the layers, we finally realized that I had been looking around at the people in my life, noticing that I didn't quite fit from my earliest days. But I have realized since then that there are so many people who have some kind of physical attribute or perhaps emotional attribute or behavioral attribute, some, something that distinguishes them in a way that they find deficient. Now, mine is an actual deficiency. It's a birth defect. It's the product of a disease. But it wouldn't have to be, honestly. It could be a scar. It could be... Um, it could be something that I picked up um, as the result of a heroic act, for instance, and it would still be the source of pain and distress because I judge it to be a deficiency. It's mm. a way in which I'm not like you or not like the other people in my life. And what I discovered is that as we, um, as we all consider ourselves, we tend to have a negativity bias. We notice the things about ourselves that are, um, that are less than ideal. And um, that's something that psychologists have written about before. But for those of us, I think, who really struggle with comparison, that negativity bias goes to um, a pretty unhealthy degree because we, we aren't able to see the good along with the bad. The bad just colors our thinking. And sometimes that can progress to the stage of self-hatred. And I'm grateful to say that wasn't my experience. I have seen that in some other people. But there are elements of um, not just self-deprecation, but sometimes even some, some loathing about particular aspects of our lives. And if that were balanced really neatly, with appreciation for other aspects of our lives, I think everything would come out in the wash. <laughs> mm -hmm. But at least in my case, there was no balance. I, I looked at the ways in which I was very clearly imperfect. And from that, I judged that I was unacceptable. You know, I figured that um, someone like me who was so imperfect couldn't possibly be acceptable. And um, from there, unfortunately, I projected those feelings onto other people and onto God. Since I was so unacceptable, I struggled to believe that others accepted me. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I was unlovable. So I struggled to believe that even, even with my husband, I struggled to believe that he actually loved me. Because how could he love someone so unlovable? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that created real problems in my relationships with, with other people and with God. Because same thing, how could God love me when I was so unlovable? I mean, Jim, yeah. I knew that God so loved the world, right? I mean, I grew up going to church. I knew all about God's love in general. But I didn't know much about God's love specifically directed to me. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, yeah. And that's the heart of it, isn't it? So then you have to ask, well, where did that come from? Like where, 
where's the construct that that happened inside that made you you know come to that so i mean let's just say for example and i'm just making this up but what if what if we lived in a culture where having a birthmark was we didn't even call it that we just called it a beauty mark and the bigger you had the more beautiful you were like the more awesome it it was mm-hmm. you know that you had that and so i mean think about that that if 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 we live in a culture where that's rewarded or that's somehow um affirmed as a sign of greatness or something how different would your experience have been right, right. that you you would have had this everyone would go you mean you'd have been proud to show it off like guys see my birthmark look at that and they'd be right, going yeah. oh my look gosh have you I, seen I would have been deemed Michelle really is- great <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have a pride problem and it'd be exactly. a whole different book exactly you know? And that's one of the things I learned about comparison. You know, when I first started studying it, Jim, it did, only um, after I started studying it did I realize that no matter which way comparison goes, it's a problem. Because regardless of whether I compare myself to someone and consider that I'm inferior, or if I compare myself with someone else and, and regard myself as superior, I'm still separated, Right. Right. There's no connection there, whether I'm better than or less than. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. And it's, and that, that's okay. Now we're getting to something pretty deep here because, you know, it seems the issue we're talking about is identity and proper self esteem and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But really, what I've discovered, and I think you do a great job in the book of, about this as well, and we're just now talking about it, is. That same phenomenon that drives the low self-esteem is the same one that drives the high self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Neither one are accurate, but both of them are actually forms of pride. Like they are, they, they're still saying what's most important to me is me and what you right. think of me. And in one case, it's like, well, you don't think that well of me, but still what's driving me is me, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that. that's still at the center. I'm refusing to be the the me that I am, right? That I've been created to be, that no one else can be, right? And instead, I am, I am wanting to be something other than that, which right. is, you know, that that is a form of pride. Which it doesn't seem like it because you see, well, that person's really struggling with, with low self esteem, and you think, well, that's certainly not pride. But in in a sense, it it still is that yeah, same. Yeah, two sides of the same coin, I think. Yeah, isn't yeah. that weird? Yeah, it, it's it's a very strange thing. There's such a, there's this quest for, this search for assurance. And it's ironic and sad that we're offered, um, through our relationship with the Lord, we're, we're offered this priceless assurance, but we're unable to accept it. And so we're on a quest for assurance. And, and I think that comparison is just a tool in that quest. We're looking for assurance, um, but it's like looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, because and yeah. whether it's better than or, or or worse than, assurance is found neither place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and we're trying to build this sense of identity, this sense of value, this sense of significance on the basis of what others say. Right. I mean, in, in the at the end of the, this whole discussion, that's what it comes down to: mm-hmm. is w- what is it that other people say. And then that is going to form the basis of my sense of identity and and value or lack thereof. Right, is going to be completely contingent on a human person's appraisal. 
Right. <laughs> which is, which even if that is, human person is me, right? Oh, it, well, <laughs> what it, you say at the about end of me, the day, or the other right. person says about me, or what I infer, or what I say about myself. None of those should be the basis, and yet sometimes we make them the basis. Yeah, yeah, and it's it is. I mean, I think the reason why your book's so important is because this is an issue that that we all face, and that is, do I matter? Like, right? right? Am I valuable? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's an absolutely unavoidable um, part of human existence. You know, we need we need to have this sense that. Um, I, I'm no accident. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sacred and significant and, and that matter has to get settled somehow. Right. And so let's say we can't really hear the voice of God. So we're going to hear the voice of whoever it is. And of course, obviously parents are huge in the early phases of our life because they're sort of God figures to us. And so mm-hmm. their appraisal, you know, is what really matters and how mom and dad see us and affirm us and, and help us understand our significance and value. And then for many people, it's going to be years of trying to fix that. Well, right. No pressure to parents, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. And then there's that too. It's like, right. even the best of parents are like, I really tried hard, but my kids didn't hear, you know, this, or I didn't do that quite well enough. So mm-hmm. the whole thing is, is difficult because it's based on human beings. And then you have, you, you, you graduate up to teachers and, and coaches and, bosses and what you know everybody's kind of evaluating us and and this is what i think you are so the whole thing is is really fraught with frustration because it's built on this idea of of the sort of precarious evaluations of other people and right and then as you so so well point out especially in the good and beautiful god jim and really in all your teaching um so often when we when we make an effort to turn to God and listen to God to establish our value, well, so many of us have those horrible God narratives. And so what we think we're hearing from God is no better than we're hearing from other people, right? So absolutely, um, if, if we think of God, for instance, the way I thought of God, which was um, sort of at best as a disappointed father. Yeah. Who was At saying best. to me, well, you know, just keep trying, you know, maybe you'll get it someday. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful either. No. So getting getting what we know to be true about God sorted out, I think, is the place where we, we, we have to start. And from there, maybe we can sort out what what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about other people, the folks we're comparing ourselves to, because that, you know, this is not just a solo game. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's the, it's, you know, ultimately who does God say that I am? And right. that, that should have the, that should be the deciding factor in the whole discussion. And, and in many cases it really is when a person is able to get in contact with their, their sacred origin, that, that they are a person that God chose to say, I want you to exist. Right. Like I'm bringing you into this world at this time, right. at this place, and this is who you are. And, um, you know, when that reality sinks into the person, you can start to let go of some of the, uh, this, this comparison trap that you write, write so well about, because it's, it's right there. So let's talk a little bit of, since you, you segued nicely, Rochelle, into that, yeah. um, about you know true and false narratives, certainly about God, about ourselves, but 
you, you tell the, the cow story oh, and right. the, the cow story it's become one of my favorite stories now because I've heard you you told it at the apprentice gathering as well and uh, it's it, it was even better live coming from you because you had you were very animated when you told this wonderful uh, story about being up in the barn and scared to death of cows scared to death of cows <laughs> right because your mom had said that they were okay so well g- give the the shortened uh, readers digest version for our listeners that that didn't get the pleasure of hearing that or having read it yet sure yeah well we, we my family had moved out to the country and we loved living out in the country with all the delights of being on a farm one of the best was a barn and we loved loved to jump out of the hayloft the only problem was that around the barn was pasture and the pasture was full of cows and my sister and I were convinced, utterly convinced, that cows were just um, man-eating brutes, that they were dangerous, and that they were to be avoided at all costs. So we, we tried to avoid them. Um, but one afternoon, we were playing in the hayloft, and while we were up there, a group of cows came and had congregated around the ladder where we needed to descend and get back to the house to get ready for an event that evening. And we honestly thought we were going to die because the cows were there. They, they were going to prevent us from being able to get out of the hayloft. <laughs> and we, what would have been a wonderful, just delightful day on a summer afternoon turned into an, an absolute horror as we screamed for help and prayed and cried and finally just made a run for it, what we thought was a run for our lives. It turns out that what we believed about cows was a myth. (laughs) They weren't actually out to eat little girls. Um, You know, they were pretty content eating hay, (laughs) but we thought they wanted to eat us. And believing that myth probably put us in some danger because it it, um, caused us to act crazily. But we didn't realize just how important... Now, in, in the book, you you're, you you ask your mom about it, and, mm-hmm. and she says something like, "Well, I, I wanted you to stay away from them." Yeah. Right? So yeah. I mean, she... we said, "Why why didn't why did you why did you let us think that the cows were mean?" You know, because once once we got inside and told her about our near death experience, she just laughed at us, <laughs> and we were like, "What?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, I wanted you to stay away from them." Yeah. So. Our believing a myth served her purpose. Now, obviously, she wasn't intending to scar us. <laughs> but no. I, I really right. think that it, that's kind of the way it goes with believing myths. Um, we believe myths about um, about ourselves and about how we relate to other people um, and about God's being disappointed in us. And so we work really hard. And, man, stuff gets done because people are trying to prove their worth or trying to earn their way into God's good graces. So sometimes um, letting us believe myths is what the rest of the world does with, with great alacrity because they're, they're happy for us to, to keep on trying to prove our worth instead of settling mm-hmm. into the, the knowledge of our worth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, what I love about that story is that your, your mom had a good intention. Like she, absolutely. Yeah. she really did think, well, you know, I don't want the girls to get Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a position of danger that, you know, you could get, you know, I mean, you're right. Cows aren't, they're herbivores. They're not going to eat you, but right. <laughs> you know, they could actually step on you or whatever, right. whatever. And so she's like, well, little girls, let's, 
but she ended up telling you something that wasn't true and that impacted your behavior. Right. And I think that's just sort of a paradigm for a lot of what I talk about, certainly on this podcast, things above, which is we believe these kind of things below that somebody told us, you know, some, somebody at some point decided to tell us, you know, and let's take God, for example, that they say, you know, God's really mad at you. God's angry. Right. God's, or back to what you said, you know, the milder, God's really disappointed in you. Right, exactly. And, you know, quite often, because I've, I work with a lot with ministers and, and some who have, you know, seen better <laughs> for some horrible narratives about God and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And they've told me, they said, you know, I really regret some things that I preached, some things right. that I that I taught people. I, I used fear to scare people. I told them God was mad at them and and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I think a lot of these toxic myths start with people who have a decent intention. In no, some I think cases. that's right. And, and, um, and some of them, I think, are not even necessarily things that have been told to us in so many words, but they're ideas that we've inferred from what we've read or what we've heard. Um, well, yeah, there's that as well. It's, mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't directly say it, but we certainly mm-hmm. picked we picked those up as we're mm-hmm. putting together, you know, our our beliefs about. Yeah, about these kinds of things. Um, I'm, you know, because I think that's right at the center of this is this idea of who, who, who does God say that I am? Right. And, um, you know, I think of the story in, in Genesis where when God comes upon Adam and Eve and says, well, who told you you were naked? Like, like who told you that? You right. Know? And there is that sort of thing. And I, I feel that same way in my own journey of coming to believe in a, in a good and beautiful God. The, the the many things I heard along the way, and and I can sort of ask, well, who told me that? Like, who That's told right. me yeah. that, that that was what God was like? And I can look at a lot of the false narratives that I've had to discover and and you know discard ultimately because they just weren't true, and obviously they weren't helpful because if it's not true, it's not beautiful and it's not good. That's right. And so yeah, I think those are all you know. But a you big know, part Jim, the truth about God. For those of us who who do struggle with issues like comparison, the truth about God and the truth about what God says I am can seem too good to be true. Like, oh, that that couldn't possibly be true. But I finally have come to believe that true humility, which is, of course, something I've always longed to develop, I think true humility is not found in self-deprecation or in self-humiliation, but rather in allowing God to speak and allowing his word to be the final word on my worth. Mm -hmm. And what he says I'm worth is actually awfully good news. And it can feel a little unseemly to claim that. Like, really? I'm I'm a beloved child of God? Surely that can't be because, you know, I'm a black hearted buzzard. Yeah. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rob, the Robin story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of where we get that. And I love too, that you said about the too good to be true. And here's, here are my thoughts on that, Rochelle. I think that um, because of the nature of a human person that we're, we're broken and fallen and we're not, um, I mean, we're not in this life. I think it's incredibly difficult to find someone who does love us without condition, right. who, who really just genuinely um, loves us that way. So when we say, well, this is what God is like, well, where, 
like that's too good to be true because I don't have right any kind of comparison. You know, I don't have mm-hmm. a way to to frame that because mm-hmm. that's beyond my experience that there would be some someone who could actually love me in that way. And, uh, and that, and that's why it's, it's, you know, it's a supernatural kind of, uh, you know, there's that, that where Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's right. I think that's true also in Romans when it says, you know, it's only by the spirit that we can cry out, Abba, Father, that to, to come to that place where we can say, I am sacred and significant. I am valuable because God made me, because God loves me, because of the relationship um, this divine dignity that God's in, conferred upon me, that's, that's right. my value. I can't really know that apart from the Spirit, I think. No, I think that's right, Jim. And it and it's, it's not that I can't know it because I'm too stupid to comprehend it. It's that I can't know it viscerally because it is so wondrous. It's so beautiful. Um, and the knowing is something that God does confer upon us. And it will, it'll flat take your breath away when, when you first realize it. Mm-hmm. It's such good news. Yeah, it is. It really is. And yeah, and you know, I, I think probably in the last year, I've, I've thought a lot more about the word dignity because I think that the fact that God has said, we said this, I said this earlier, you know, I want you to exist. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's true of all of us, every you and me, Rochelle, and everybody listening. At some point, I believe that by divine fiat, that God, by his power, said, that person's going to exist. Mm-hmm. And, and we come into existence, and then that same God who said that of us, of our existence, also says, you know what, I'm also going to die for you. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to the worst extremes to suffer and to reconcile you, to show you how much I love you. And, and to me, I just think about the dignity that God confers upon us by virtue of our creation, by virtue of the Christ event. And to me, that's the unassailable um, establishment of my worth, you know? And, and I, I, I've quoted on this podcast before because it's one of my favorite Christmas lines. But, you know, in, in O Holy Night, where it says, and he appeared and the soul felt the soul its worth. Felt its worth, right? Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's—I think the Christ event of the the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and return. Ultimately, every part of our story is conferring this dignity mm-hmm. on every person, mm-hmm. and that's to me that's got to that's got to trump everything. It's got to say, well, yeah, but I have a big nose, or I'm short, or I'm I'm bald, right. whatever it is. Well, it's, whatever I have a birthmark, you know. It's yes. yeah, it, it's it's no, actually, God willed me into existence and then everything God could possibly do to draw me into this relationship he's done. And by virtue of that invitation into a life with him, like what's, what's greater than an invitation to live with him in the kingdom is right. that's, that's the dignity, you know? So yeah, the, the one who, who is in himself relationship lifts us into relationship. I mean, there, there, there really is nothing, nothing better than being in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with one another, right? I mean, yeah. it's just an amazing way that we were designed. And it's not because we made some grand choice. It's because this is the way God designed things. Yeah, Community is the best model. And we know that because God is the one who created it. 
This is the way he made us to be. This is the yeah. way he is. And and that's the establishment of value, you know, is, is that, mm-hmm. I mean, we can say, I said this to my class the other day. It was kind of an off the cuff, weird thing I said, but we were talking about like what people say about us or we, what even what, what we think God says about us. Mm-hmm. I said, all of that really, I think, doesn't hold a candle to the fact that God, not what God says about us, but the fact that God invites us into a That's relationship. Right. And I think about that on a human level. Like I can say, oh, you know, I got these likes or these people wrote this review and they said my book was good or they, all these sorts of things. But the most important thing in human relationship is when someone says, hey, I just really want to be with you. That's right. Like I I would like, and you see that like in little kids, like a little kid who goes to a new school and they're just super scared, you know, like, and, and they don't know. And then some other kid just goes, hey, you want to hang out with us? Right. And that little kid, you can just see them like they, their soul just comes to life. Like that person invited me to be, and they didn't say you're awesome or you're cool or I like your backpack or you're handsome or pretty. They just said, Hey, do you want to hang up with us? No, that's right. And it's not, it's not a judgment based on, on what they were able to do. So what, what warms our heart is not when someone says, okay, here, I'll give you a chance to prove yourself. And if you can perform nine out of 10 tasks perfectly, then you'll be accepted. No, mm-hmm. no. It's, it's the, the being with, just in a relationship, just because of your inherent value. That's what our souls long for, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's offered to us. Yeah. And it's demonstrated so beautifully in Jesus. You know, I was, the other day I was preparing for a talk and I was thinking about the woman at the well, that famous story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's this woman, obviously not living a virtuous life. You know, we know that she was, and Jesus pointed out, Hey, this dude, you're now living. He's not even your husband either. And mm-hmm. you've been doing that for a long time. That's why she has to come at midday because she's ashamed. Right. And, and yet he doesn't ever say anything other than, yeah, I have this water that I can give to you and it's going to, you're like, you're never going to thirst again. Mm-hmm. And when I, I believe, it doesn't say it, and I have to read it into the text a bit, but I believe that when she heard him say that, it was like saying, he loves me. Like he, he wants relationship with me. He, he, want, he isn't pointing out my failures or asking me to shape up. He's just saying, hey, I have this, this thing that this, this kind it's, it's, I am actually, I'm the living water, right? But if you are with me, then this is what you're going to experience. Right. And I think, well, of course she, and that was after he had told her that he knew her story. Yes. Right. right. He knew the truth about her. Um, Yeah. You know, what does he, what does she say when she goes back to the village? I I met a man who told me everything I'd ever done. (laughs) Yeah. So, and not um, in a bad way. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Right. Or the story of Zacchaeus, you know, that was in the lectionary reading the other day. And Zacchaeus was like, he just comes upon, you know, we think the wee little man, he had to climb up in a tree because he was short of stature. But Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, let's have dinner at your place. And you don't have any other exchange that he was, he was trying to fix Zacchaeus or make him better or get mad at him or he liked him because he was so shrewd. Wow, you're really good at lying and extorting people. He didn't, all you just have is like they had dinner and Zacchaeus went, I'm going to be different. Right. Because this guy wanted a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And so I think somewhere that's, that's the key. Like, you know, John 14, 9, I quote it all the time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is God like? He's like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And when, when he's doing these things, it's, it's, it's demonstrating to the broken people 
I am devoted to you guys. I want to be with you. And there's your significance, right? right. There, there's your value. And, uh, and your book, Rochelle, just, it, 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 it echoes that sentiment from the first page to the last. I mean, you, that's what you're trying to do is to communicate that message. And I, I especially love the chapter on the Trinity, you know, which is talk about going deep on a, on a book about identity. He's like, well, she's talking about the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that in your self-help section very often. Well, no, probably not. Right. <laughs> but you're digging deep into theology there, but that's important because ultimately it isn't what somebody says about me or even something I try to tell myself about me. It's what is the, what does God, the Trinity, the triune, this community say about me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does he say about me? How did he design me to be? Do I have to stand alone? You know, Jim, I think especially those of us in the Western world can can get pretty pretty deeply caught in the notion of being, um, well, you know, in American history, we talked about the rugged individualist, and mm-hmm. that can that can stand out as an ideal that we must be self-sufficient or else we are deficient. And yet, Self-sufficiency is not what God designed us for. You know, I talk to so many people who, who really are in the throes of agony because they, they just feel that they're not enough. You know, I'm just, I'm just not enough. I can't, I'm not enough to be a good this or that. And, um, and actually, I think the answer is not in trying to be more. The answer is in just trying to be who you are. Because you weren't created to be everything. No one is all that in a bag of chips, and no one needs to be. Because mm-hmm. we were created to work together and to to be with one another and all of us to be with God. So there's there's no worry about being enough. Yeah. I want to tell people, are you kidding? You're, you're, you're plenty mm-hmm. to be you. Right. You're plenty to be you. And you are needed and necessary. Yeah. I am less without you. There it is. Yeah. Yep. You've, you've always been enough. I mean, there's one mm-hmm. to really, really, you know, I talk about I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And that's, that's right. a, an amazing mantra. I, I think the Holy Spirit gave that to me um, sort of by accident a few years back. And I think, well, first, it's true. It's biblically accurate, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, but, you know, I think also that what I just said, I think, you know, to one of the things that is helpful, I think, in this issue is just leaning into that that reality that I've always been enough. I've mm-hmm. always been enough. And that's hard. That's hard in a world that tells mm-hmm. you you're, you're not enough, as you said so well, because that's what, that's what we're going to hear in this culture of comparison, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're not enough. No, I've, you know what? I've actually always been enough. And mm-hmm. Yeah, but enough to be, you're enough to be Jim. Mm-hmm. And isn't the world a better place because Jim Smith is in it? You know, it really is, Rochelle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and it's better because Rochelle is in this world. And uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And everybody listening, I hope every person listening to this podcast knows that about themselves as well. Right. And it's not narcissism, right? No, it's, it's not. not. And it's not just some prideful. It's it's just stating the reality that we are all these amazing sacred beings and um, and far greater than we can even imagine. Well, Rochella, this has been fantastic as I knew it would because I've known you a long time and you've Mm -hmm. always been fun to talk with. And now that you have this book, we've got there's just been so much to talk about. We didn't we didn't cover the whole thing. We covered a bunch, 
But, well, uh, because obviously we, we, we need people to go buy it, right? Yes, indeed. Our publisher we, will we be do. much happier. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But the, the, the return on the kingdom investment is even greater that, uh, oh. that what happens to people as they read this and thank you. And I the sure Holy Spirit. So uses that and that's that's a beautiful thing about books man they they work when we're sleeping and mm-hmm. that's, that's a dallasism but it's a it's a wonderful thing to to have books and to do what they do and i thank you for writing it i know book writing is hard <laughs> it's it not is it's, some people see us do it and they think oh i can do that mm, it's really hard yeah <laughs> it, it takes a long time and it's fraught with a lot of stuff but you've did it. You've done it, and Rochella, and I'm so grateful that you did. And thanks for being faithful to that process and giving us this this incredible book, Mythical Me: Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison, University Press. And do listeners go out and buy it because it's great. Mm-hmm. Rochella, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much for having yes. me on as a guest. Yours continues to be one of my favorite podcasts, and very often. When someone asks what's on my mind, I, I answer, at least to myself, things above. Things above. There you go. There it is. There it is. Well, on that note, thank you, Rochella, and uh, let's do this again. That'd be great. All right. Blessings to you. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Rochella Parham. I know I did. She is fantastic. And I hope you'll join me next week for Episode 66. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, hey, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>